Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Caring is central to our lives as social beings. Caring for babies and children, for those living with illness and disability, and caring as we age underpins so much of what matters for us in our society. Caring for our environment and creating healthy spaces for living rewards our physical and mental health. Caring for people and place is central to our well-being and to our humanity. Yet providing care is frequently unpaid or low-paid. Young people are not commonly encouraged into caring work. Caring in our society is sometimes seen as a distraction from the real work. So what would happen if we placed caring as a central tenant as policy in Australia? Caring for people, caring for place. Would this help create a happier and healthier society? Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its regions. Today's podcast comes with a hashtag, hashtag value caring, as we dive into caring, its role in our society, its value, and how a focus on caring might change our world. I'm Anna Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician, and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine here at the Australian National University. And I'm delighted to be in the studio today with my co-host, Sharon. How are you? Hi, Anna Greta. I'm really well, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. We've been talking about doing this for a while, and this theme of caring and valuing caring just comes up again and again in our conversations. It does. I don't think we've done a podcast where it wasn't at least a side theme, so I think it's a really great way to unify some of the things we recognise as important. Absolutely. And for those listeners that don't know me, I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School at the ANU. So this is Policy Forum Pod, and Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net. We're part of the Crawford School of Public Policy, and the Crawford School is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. We've got some great short courses and graduate and degree programs, and you can check that out at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. So Sharon, who have we got to talk to us today about the value of caring? We have two amazing guests that we have been wanting to get together in the studio for quite some time now. So we're, we're, we're very excited. We have Dr. Elise Klein. Elise is a, a colleague here at the Crawford School where she is a senior lecturer of public policy. 
She has a really wide range of research interests, including the rise of therapeutic cultures in policies, neoliberal subjectivities, economic rights, and decoloniality. And Elise does a lot of work around this idea of caring and the value of care. She has two books, which include Developing Minds, Psychology, Neoliberalism, and Power, and Reading Amartya Sen's Inequality Reexamined. And excitingly, Elise and I are working on a paper together at the moment about the value of care. So we'll be plugging that on the podcast when we finally have that published. Elise has also held roles on the United Nations Secretary General's high-level panel on women's economic development and the Human Rights Committee within the UN General Assembly. She was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia in 2019. Welcome, Elise. It is great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. And we are all so delighted to have Millie Rooney with us today. I think some of our listeners will know Millie. She has been with us on the pod before. Always fantastic conversations. Millie is coordinator of Australia Remade, an independent, not for profit leadership network where Australian civil society leaders can collaborate with one another and engage in long term proactive agenda setting. It's a really exciting initiative. Millie's research background focuses particularly on local community and social norms around neighbourhood sharing and community building, and she gained her PhD in Urban Studies and Cultural Geography from the University of Tasmania. Millie, great to have you with us. Welcome. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. And so, Millie, let's start with talking about Australia Remade. This organisation that you coordinate has a vision of reimagining and remaking Australia based on your discussions with people around the country about the future that they hope for and that they dream of. Where does caring for one another fit into that vision of a future Australia? Oh, I mean, I think caring is is central to that vision, really, and in, in so many different ways. You know, we've got the the first pillar, we've got nine pillars of Australia remade for the vision. And pillar one is a first people's heart. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and cultures are celebrated at the very heart of what it means to be Australian. You know, and that's about, you know, the long history of care for this country and um, and the ongoing culture. And then pillar number two is a natural world for now and the future. It's it's care for the the environment, for the planet, for place, and and so on and so on. And one of the the really key parts of it is about time to care and to be cared for and in conversations that we've had with you know hundreds of conversations ongoing conversations with people across the country you know care whether it's health care mental health care care for our elderly places where young people can be cared for and valued you know disability care care for children it you know, care and love, you know, are the heart of what people talk about. And we joke about, you know, we don't hear everybody saying, oh, you know, we want jewel encrusted bathtubs. We want care. They're very different things. And and care is what people talk about. Elise, as I said, um, when I was introducing you, a lot of your work has, has focused on care, a lot of your research. And as we're already starting to see, care is such an essential part of the human condition. We all need care and we all provide care. Care can be a burden and it's often presented as a burden, but it's also an incredible joy. Based on your research, Elise, how do you define care? I think there's various different ways in which we can sort of think of care, but I I really like Millie's way of looking at it 
in thinking of it quite broadly. So, you know, it's, it is the care of people, but it's also the care of country also. And, and that's very much, you know, coming from First Nations literature as well about how important care of country is to understanding, yeah, this, this concept of care. But I guess that, you know, there's, I mean, other sort of more sort of pointed ideas around care as a part of what gets known as social re- reproduction. So it's all the things that we do to keep us alive and actually all of that work underpins the economy because if we don't have people that are alive and healthy and growing up and little people you know developing into bigger people who will pay taxes etc etc then we don't have an economy so uh you know care i think is a really it's, it's nice to think of it in a very broad sense but we also need to acknowledge how much it sustains uh the life systems that that we rely on including the economy Millie, you've mentioned the nine pillars for Australia Remade and I highly recommend it. I really recommend people listening if you've not checked out this organisation to have a look through the work that's done. The fourth pillar uh, identifies a good society where all contributions count and where jobs has dignity. And you note that paid employment is not the only pathway towards worthiness, recognition and success. How well do we recognise contributions that are about caring rather than what's described as productive contribution through paid employment? Oh, I think we do it really terribly. You know, I think you just have to listen to a lot of my peers who are parents and you ask them, oh, what, you know, what do you do? Oh, nothing. I'm just a parent. Or, you know, the care that a lot of a lot of my community takes for each other, it's, it's fitted into the, you know, the slivers of leftover life is where care gets put. And to name, you know, you're not always paid for your care work and we're not even given time to do that care work, I think. And so it's interesting hearing Elise talk about the economy because one of the things I'm really passionate about is how do we make space to value care without it having to explicitly contribute to the economy? And in my PhD research, one of the things that was really interesting was this idea of kind of social debt and the social debt of care so that if you know, you can exchange things. I can go to the supermarket and I can buy a toothbrush, but I can't go and buy community care. Someone can't come to my house, have a cry, and then I don't say, oh, thank you, $50 for my contribution to community care. You know, it it kills that relationship. But I have to then personally choose to make the time to be available to my community to turn up on my doorstep and cry. And we don't we don't validate that as as real work. And you know, my own way of pushing back on that has been when I'm in meetings, often with more senior people, and everyone's introducing themselves as you know, I'm the director of X, I'm the CEO of Y. You know, I'll say, well, I'm Millie, I'm the national coordinator for Australia Remade, and I'm also a carer, and I consider that legitimate work. You can't pay me to do that work, um, but I am going to put a stake in the ground and say, this takes my time. Um, And so I think that takes, I feel like that takes courage to do. I feel really nervous every time I do that. It does instantly change the conversation in the room and people soften and become more human. But I think as a society, we're very unpractised at valuing care outside of, you know, the economic framework of carer as, you know, paid childcare or nurse. I mean, and even paid is very undervalued. Do you think we do it better in some areas? Uh, So particularly for unpaid caring, are there some areas where we acknowledge that better than in others? I think, you know, I think parent, you know, parents as carers is, you know, has has really gained more legitimacy as as valuable care work that's unpaid. But I 
I don't, I still don't think we're very good at, at valuing the care that is the glue care, you know, the care that is our community, the, the care that is expressions of, of love and, and that goes beyond uh, connection to family. You know, I don't have my own children, but I'm deeply connected in almost a family way to a lot of community. And, and we don't even have a language for those relationships of care. Mm. I really like that phrase, glue care. It's great. (laughs) Elise, I I wanted to unpack where the economy fits within all of this and where the economy should fit within all of this. You've looked in your research about the ways in which society and also the economy is deeply dependent on unpaid care work. And Millie raised that, that really important fundamentally important issue of whether we should be thinking about care in economic terms. But of course, when we don't give things economic value, we sometimes don't get the traction. So we have this dilemma. How do we begin to talk about the value of care in a way that that really legitimises the deep human importance of it, but also gets us into those spaces where we can get the ear of decision makers. So, Elise, can you just talk us a little bit through the way in which you've addressed this in your research in thinking about that relationship of care to to the economy and to economic prosperity as well mm. as to society and people? Yeah, I mean, I guess the first thing to say is that when we're talking about the co- the economy, we're talking about a specific type of a, a specific economic system and that, you know, we know as, as capitalism. And I guess, you know, in that formula and in that system, care is subjected to what Millie's talking about, the sort of what gets talked as, you know, you know, the real work, the sort of productive work that is in the economy that gets valued, that gets paid, but yet care is so foundational to capitalism that it allows, uh, yeah, people to grow, people, you know, the glue that Melly talks about, the social glue that, that keeps people functioning together, surviving and, and feeling connected, all of that is super important for the economic system that is capitalism to, to exist. Now, the way in which that work, that care work is seen as secondary is a major tension within the economic system that we have and, and why we see that it gets devalued, the unpaid care gets devalued, but also the paid care gets devalued. It has a sort of a flow-on effect to, you know, the important work, the caring work that people do as jobs is largely underpaid but it is really skilled, really important, really difficult work in a lot of cases, but yet gets uh, under uh, undervalued um, in the monetary sense. So you, ha- you, but then then there is this sort of argument of well, why do we need to value care in monetary terms? And I think that I think that is a really important, really important point. I think though, with um, the current economic system, I think it's important to acknowledge what's there already to be able to move past where we are now. And I think in terms of using monetary value to talk about care and saying, well, actually, you know, it is at least about, its contribution is at least about 50% of GDP. The last time you survey, depending on how it was measured, it comes to around about that. You know, that's quite a, a breathtaking number to go, whoa, that is a huge amount of unpaid work that gets, that, that is generated by people living here that gets unpaid and, and, and 
and is not largely not seen, but absolutely exists. So I think by using these monetary terms can be useful to acknowledge what's here, but only so far as that then we can move beyond it um, and and think about the different ways in which we can rework the economy so that uh, care is not just secondary to these capitalist understandings of, of, of work, but actually it's acknowledged for its own good and 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 its own contribution. Elisa, I, I wanted to to stay with you just for a minute and and but to go back and to pick up on a point that, that Millie made about the importance of caring and actually stating that you are a carer as part of mm-hmm. The work that you do, but also part of the life that you lead and the love that you have. One of the things that that I often observe in a workplace is that women are very reticent to say, I'm caring for my child, I'm a mother, I have these responsibilities, I have to go and do these things for my children. They'll, they'll just try to juggle things but not speak about it. Increasingly, as men have taken on more of that caring role for children, which is such a great thing. I very often hear men in professional environments saying, I have to go and pick my children up, so I have to leave this meeting early. And there's often a, a kind of silent applause around that. And I think that's a that's a great thing, that men are looking after children and being able to look after children. But we do see that real gender difference where women feel much more reticent and much more concerned that it's going to undermine their professional position if they say that they are carers. So I think we've got some some real challenges there. But this, of course, is really exacerbated for single mothers. And Elise, you've done a lot of work around this and you've drawn on Nancy Fraser's concept of freeloading to critique the way in which single mothers in particular are stigmatised for not being in the labour force um, and the way in which systems will often prevent single mothers from being able to care for their children and give the time that they want to caring. Can you just talk us through how this plays out? Yeah, I mean, sure. And I think you're absolutely right, Sharon, this sort of role of gendered norms and how they regulate, you know, how people feel and the different roles that people are meant to take on. And, and if we are moving towards a sort of an economic system that that centres care, absolutely gendered norms need to be be targeted and, and sort of reworked so that everybody can do um, care work and everyone can feel good about doing care work. And because, like you rightly point out, our current sort of the status quo is there are a lot of groups who are actually deterred from doing their care work. First Nations people, absolutely, living on country, living remotely, doing unpaid care of country. A lot of people are, are disregarded as as being not productive, not in the labour force and are subjected to very harsh, um, it's called the Community Development Program. It's a very harsh work for the doll program targeted at First Nations people. It's so bad that the government's now scrapping it and they're reworking a new idea which we're all worried about what what will will come out. But but you know that's a group that's been deterred from doing care of country. But as you rightly point out, single parents and particularly single mums also we have a a program at the moment called Parents Next uh, that targets predominantly single mothers uh, and it's a form of welfare conditionality also where it's compulsory so you have to turn up to specific activities that are meant to get you job ready but often aren't. There's sort of a confusion around the point of the activities where a lot of people that are forced to go to them see them as as a 
to put it bluntly, a, a waste of time. So interviews that I've done with women being put on this program uh, see that it's a real hurdle, it's a real stress. And of course, if you don't comply with these conditions, then your money can be can be suspended. But at the heart of what this program is and and my sort of analysis of it is this sort of deterrence where where single mums, you know, are are looking after their kids for a variety of reasons. A lot of them are very skilled, have been in the labour market and have taken time out for various reasons to look after their children, some often because they have no choice, that that childcare is expensive even with rebates, that the kind of work that they could do around their childcare caring, you know, is very precarious, you know, it doesn't fit in with looking after their kids. And and, and often women uh, moved away from relationships because they have been, um, you know, violent relationships. So finding themselves in, you know, being single parents and, and, have, and doing the care work, but yet having to deal with this program, a government program that, that does not see their, their care work at all and sees them as unemployed. Uh, and and thus needing to be compelled into the labour market. It does not value the work that that these women are doing. It completely disregards that work. So there's a real tension there. And then, of course, they're punished uh, for their caring work, which is, I think, a real, a, a really uh, terrible, terrible outcome for, for public policy. Millie, we're talking here about stigmatisation and discrimination on the basis of working as a carer. How can we flip that narrative? Can we use some imagination? Can we change that particular perspective? Well, that's a big question. Um, (laughs) I mean, I was thinking as Elise was talking there that part of the challenge here, I think, is zooming out and thinking, well, what's, why are we talking about care? Why do we value care? What is the, you know, what's the public good we're trying to create or maintain here? You know, what's the environment we need to create for care to flourish? So thinking about zooming back there. And, you know, one of the extraordinary things about Biden's jobs plan is that the very second point there is infrastructure for care or infrastructure of care. And he talks there, you know, it talks about creating more jobs for particularly women of colour who are most effect- most often in those low-paid care jobs because we need people in our society to be cared for and because we need an infrastructure to enable people to care. And so thinking again, you know, Elise's comments about single parents and how do we have a how do we have a context where you don't have to get paid specifically for the hours of care you put into caring for your own child, but you get paid because we think care is an important activity for people to participate in. So here's some, you know, maybe it's a um, universal basic income or maybe it's something else, but in the same way that you know, the arts are valuable because art is valuable, you know, care is valuable because care and being cared for is valuable. How do we free up that space? So I think, you know, thinking about care, not as just how do we break it down into the individual pieces of care we can pay for, but how do we see, you know, I love that idea of infrastructure of care because it gives us scope to be more imaginative um, in that, I think. I think that's a great spot for us to take a short break and we'll be back in a moment. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're here with Elise Klein and Millie Rooney and we're talking about the value of caring. Millie, the Royal Commission into Aged Care in Australia revealed some fairly horrific and shocking abuses of older people living in aged care. The stories that people told were heartbreaking. We spoke last week on the podcast with Diane Gibson and Nick Bedell about this, that particular Royal Commission, and they had some quite remarkable insights to share. If listeners want to check that out, it's, it's available online. And of course, we've heard similar terrible stories around the abuse of children who've been in institutional care. How do we begin that transformation where the most vulnerable people in our society are genuinely cared for? How how can we make this space? Oh, I feel like that's a very big question. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're feeling good that we're asking the big questions here and (laughs) recognising that there might not be answers, but we start the conversation. I mean... (laughs) There's so many different levels of that. You know, there's the stuff that we've talked about of, of, you know, valuing care and also valuing humans, you know, whoever you are. And I think that's in the conversations I've had recently with a lot of people um, around the idea of the public good, you know, what public goods you want available to in your community. I'm hearing so, I mean, particularly across age, but so often the very first thing that the, you know, younger people, the 20-year-olds will say to me is, I want a place for our older people to be, to be safe, to be in community, to participate. And until we have that cultural shift, you know, one of the things we have to do is that cultural shift of recognising everybody counts, you know, everyone has something that is inherently valuable and worthy of care. And, you know, again, that comes back to how we value contribution to society. You can contribute in a way that isn't, you know, paid paid work. You can contribute as an older person by just being in the space and being, you know, having a history and a story and a, <laughs> you know, a mentoring role. So I think part of it is is being more imaginative about how we love our communities. And then, and I think, also taking profit out of care, you know, that would be the number one thing that I think is a, you know, pattern in all of those horrific discoveries in these royal commissions is is profit has been prioritised over people and privatisation of things that that shouldn't be for profit. So really actually stepping back and, and asking why are we doing this, what is the purpose, I think is, is really important. So that, you know, how we change the culture of how we view each other and taking the money out, um, or at least the big profits. Mm. Millie, I, I think that that issue of profit is exactly where we wanted to go with this conversation, <laughs> and we've we've already raised the the c word that um, capitalism is the system that we are operating within. But I think this is one of the really striking features of what we might call twenty first century capitalism is just that financialization and that profitization of all things, including care, and you know we we see that 
coming up again and again, particularly around aged care, but also around disability and a whole range of, of other issues that really impact on people's lives. Elise, can I ask you for your thoughts on this and how that financialization and profitization is is impacting on the way we think about caring and the way we, we carry out caring? Yeah, I mean, it sort of goes to those points that Millie raised right at the start around, you know, care is the glue that holds us together. It, it's so important and it's so foundational. It's the, you know, it's the the feeling of connectedness. It's the feeling of, you know, having people around that look out for you, that you look after people. It's the so it's the glue work. And and I guess that is stuff that does not translate into, you know, a profit for profit environment. And when it does, it becomes secondary to the bottom line of, of, of profit. And so I think, you know, taking profit out of these 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 privatized systems, I think is a really, really important point that Millie raises. Uh, and and something that really, if we move towards wanting to center care, that we need to look at these systems that are trying to destabilize those those glue, that glue work in in a way and it comes at a detriment to the people uh, in in the center of it and I, and I think you know the other thing is is that acknowledging that people are contributing all the time uh, and you know I mean my my grandmother passed last last year and um, I would go to see her in her um, in her nursing home and you know, it was extraordinary. I mean, there was people there that were paid, a lot of paid people at low at low rates. Um, but then there was also a lot of volunteers uh, and and uh, people who just went about the, using their own time, unpaid care that would come in and spend time with my grandmother, but also others that were in the in the home. And it was ext- like, and it, and it made her day constantly. And, and, you know, it's all of that work that is outside of the, it's almost that work was propping up the actual nursing home system, if you know what I mean. It's all these people, all this unpaid work that was, was keeping uh, people feeling good and carrying on in, in their lives. So, you know, I think acknowledging all of this, all of the cared work and having, I think, some form of, I mean, I, I, I um, echo Millie's point around sort of a basic income. Colleagues and I have been working on this idea of a livable income guarantee. So it's, it is a form of basic income, but there would be some sort of acknowledgement around the contribution that people are making to society, to each other, uh, and, and care work would be foundational to that. You know, I think all of that provides a space to which people can have their time back to be able to engage in these important, this important work that, that sort of, you know, outside of what gets called the real economy, but actually foundational to it. And then we can move towards something else when people get their time back. Some of our listeners will will remember that we had a mini series last year on the wellbeing economy and the kinds of issues that are emerging here we focused on during that series. So listeners, if you're finding this interesting, go back and have a listen to that wellbeing economy series. I think there's there's so much there that's picking up on these themes. And one of the themes that we talked about was a basic income. And Millie, I'm, I'm interested to get your thoughts on, on two parts of the story that's emerging here. One is basic income and whether a basic income 
is a mechanism to help to ensure that people have the time to be able to engage in the kinds of care work that they want to do within their families, within their communities. But the other part of this story seems to be the very low wages received by many people who do paid care work and the increasing precariousness of that work, as much of that work is is casualised and very uncertain. So I'm just really interested to hear your thoughts on those two parts of this. Firstly, whether basic income would make a difference, but also this real problem of precariousness and low pay. Yeah, so I think um, in terms of the basic income you know, you can do a basic income very badly. So I don't think it's it's necessarily the silver bullet. It's again, it's how we do it, why we do it, the purpose and values driving driving it and the context that it happens in. So, you know, it would be all very well to say here's a here's a payment for everyone in Australia. But that we don't we want to make sure that that's then not an excuse to dismantle the public health care system or to um, you know dismantle other other forms of caring so i think just being really clear that any sort of ubi or anything like that has to be situated within a broader context of care and you know i'm not across the you know the details of how that would work but i i really do think it's it's worth interrogating as an idea with care at the core because i do think the instant we you know like my example of someone crying at my door and me saying thank you $50 like we we kill my ability to do that care work if I start to charge for it because it's 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 the it's the sticky relationships it's the it's the unclear relationships that enable us to to do that care as humans rather than as clients or customers so I, I think any kind of infrastructure infrastructure of care again to use that language is is really worth thinking about and that requires us as a country to work out what is at the core of why we do what we do. And in terms of then the the low wages for paid care, I mean, automatically was actually thinking, what if you were someone, so, you know, to be transparent, I have a husband with a disability and I'm a carer for him. So, you know, this is obviously very close to my heart, but thinking about the stress that comes with living with someone who requires different care to a normal partner, um, you know, I'm very lucky, I have work, he's, he's got enough ability to mostly look after himself on the day-to-day things. If I if I myself was in really precarious work, the added stress to my life of needing a different kind of care in my family setup, and having financial stress, and then if I was if we were a family that you know needed the NDIS, imagining people coming in to support in ways that was precarious for them, um, you know, like the, the flow and effects aren't just that carers themselves are in precarious positions. It's what that does for their own lives, for their own ability to to care, because it's often people who, you know, are are juggling multiple things in this work. And then again, the way that it it makes invisible the humanness of the people who are being cared for. And I I think that's a real tension I have. I'd love Elise's thoughts on this of like how we juggle we you know, on the one hand, I'm really passionate about not putting dollar value on care. On the other hand, we really need to put dollar value on care <laughs> and security to make sure that that there is care work that that does does need people in secure paid positions to deliver. So I think we've somehow got to find a story that unites those 
those parts. Elise, let's hear your thoughts on this. How do we value caring by value caring? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just, I'll come to but just just one thing about the precariousness and the basic income. I I do think everything Millie said, I, I totally agree with. I do think a basic income possibly it has a possibility of providing people an economic. Uh, floor to stand on to which to push back against low paid work. So, you know, and I think that would really help the paid caring sector, um, where if you had a, a basic income, so you, you weren't forced into destitution if you refused low paid work, that you could bargain and you could push back for, for better valued care, uh, paid care work, um, as well as, or you could use that economic floor to use your time to to engage in whatever care work you liked outside of that. I think the tricky bit in there though is is this thing about gendered norms mm-hmm. um, and needing to rework gendered norms so you don't we don't have end up in a system where you know it's just women on basic income doing unpaid care work which is low pay which would be comparatively low paid to all the paid work out there. So you know we need to sort of liberate care and redistribute care so that everybody can engage in that work, not just so it's just it's it's gendered. And then in terms of valuing care, look, I, I kind of see it in terms of using the master's tools to reconfigure a different economy. Um, and I, I that to me, that's the point of of why you would put a dollar value on unpaid care work. It's it's about using the master's tools to be able to say, hey, look how much we rely on this. Look how important it is, and. Uh, and it's also important for all these other reasons, and um, it has all sorts of important um, contributions to a world where we're faced with growing inequalities, where we're faced with climate change, um, and and care really needs to be a central feature of an economy that's fit for purpose for you know the, the climate changed future that we're that we're well and truly into. Caring economics, I can see the model emerging, Millie. The first of Australia Remade's pillars, and you mentioned it at the beginning of this conversation, is around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and the culture that's celebrated at the very heart of what it means to be Australian. We've all, I think, touched a little on some of the extraordinary knowledge that we can gain from listening to Indigenous voices, particularly when they talk about caring for country. But I wondered if you might share with us some of the discussions you've had with people around Australia on the importance of this principle. Yeah, so... I mean, this comes up in in every conversation. Well, not every conversation. Many, many of the conversations that that we have, and I think it's it is increasingly there is an increasing connection between the language of care and a recognition and a, and I think an awe of of the history on this continent of of care for such a long time. And I I don't think we've even begun to grapple with the significance of that and you know I think also in in the conversations we have around care is making sure that we also don't just separate out First Nations and care as being about country but also recognizing you know I had this amazing conversation with a woman you know who was speaking about mental health care she was um she was a First Nations woman and she she was saying you know we need healthcare systems that recognize that mental you know managing mental health is access to country and it's access to country is not you know that that means kind of reconfiguring leave from work it's reconfiguring transport to get access to country but she was in a rural area and was talking about how difficult you know public transport access was so thinking about what care means you know 
in a historical way, in a in a culturally relevant way, you know, again, it's this we need this imagination about what what care means, and you know, even it's a bit of a wild thing, but you know, I I saw a GP once in the middle, you know, I was in the middle of my PhD, I was really stressed, and she said, you know. I think you just need to go for a swim in the sea. <laughs> and, you know, I have to say it really helped. I mean, you know, the, you know, I know there's sort of, you know, medical practitioners prescribing forest walks and all of those sorts of things. But, you know, that would be an interesting way of connecting, you know, environment and, and care and just being more imaginative and, and more expansive in our thinking of how these two things overlap. I, I think there's... Yeah, there, there's something in that that imagination and that that awe of recognition of the history that that is on this land. Elise, we you know we hear from Millie there about the the, the deep value and the awe. I love that word, that description mm-hmm. that many non-Indigenous Australians have for First Nations culture. But of course, we see many policies that don't value or celebrate First Nations peoples and cultures. And many of those policies have had a really devastating impact. And the cashless debit card is one such policy. And Elise, you've done a lot of work around this. I wonder if you can share with us your thoughts on how we begin to rethink our policy frames. So rather than disregarding or being punitive of First Nations cultures, we actually begin to respect, value and learn from those cultures. Yeah, I mean, I th- I th- yeah, I think something like the cashless debit card, but also, you know, the community development program, that really harsh work for the Dole program in remote Australia, you know, these are all examples of, you know, I guess really decare. I remember when Malcolm Turnbull went to announce the continuation of the cashless debit card trial, he called it tough love. And it was really weird for me to hear that because, I mean, everything I had seen in my research but also others around the cashless debit card looked at how much um, these punitive policies completely disrupt the ways in which community and individuals uh, care for each other and are enduring uh, in a settler colonial situation. So, you know, everything Millie saying, I absolutely am on board with. And I, and I think there's also needs to be an acknowledgement of the amount of care work that First Nations ha- people have to do to endure under a settler colonial regime where, you know, colonisation never finished here in, in, in Australia, that First Nations people didn't get independence like you saw say in other places around the world that that continues and you know we see all sorts of policies implemented on First Nations people uh, that have all sorts of, of terrible effects and, and the cashless debit card is 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 just one uh, and so you know the the amount of work that people do in community to keep language alive to keep connected to country to keep community alive and thriving you know I, I gave evidence for the um, um, 13 deaths of y- y- young people across the East Kimberley and, you know, suicide was a major part of that that inquest. And the amount of work that people do to keep their young people feeling hopeful and, and connected is huge. And this is, and, and, and that work is largely not seen. And that that is, I guess, in a way, some, it is care work. But also, I mean, just in terms of the, the, the work that gets put into caring for country to which, you know, our whole economy thrives on, um, you know, resource extraction and extraction out of uh, of First Nations land. And, and we need to sort of see the ways in which 
First Nations peoples, and it's not just culture, but the ways in which they and have looked after this this place um, is is used by the sort of settler settler nation. And we really must, I think, be a little bit critical about that, but also celebrate the extraordinary endurance that First Nations people have done, but also honour people um, instead of being a sort of a deficit model of of saying, well, you know, that this is not happening, this is not, ha- this is not happening. Um, we need to sort of tell the truth about the situation where people are enduring under extraordinary circumstances that they have endured since you know, uh, white people got here, and we need to reconfigure policy to 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 honour the sovereignty and to honour the care work that's been going on, not make it harder for people. Really important ideas about how we can acknowledge cultural significance. We might just come quickly to a global context because these issues that we've been talking about in the Australian context are, I think, relevant globally. The International Labour Organization has focused attention on the problems of paid work and care work by arguing that the world paid care work remains characterised by a void of benefits and protections, low wages and not or non-compensation, and exposure to physical, mental and in some case sexual harm. Millie, as we're thinking about how we can remake Australia, how can we also reimagine the value of care in all its forms globally? Do you throw me the big questions? I thought remaking Australia was big enough. Far out. <laughs> I think some of what you've already done gives us great ideas about how to change the world. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think, again, it, it, it comes back to, to thinking about what we mean by care and what do we put at the heart of, of why we do what we do. You know, is it profit? Is it power? Is it care? You know, it's obviously complicated how these things relate. But, you know, immediately I'm thinking about the COVID context and vaccines and vaccine patents and who's got access to, you know, we're really all connected, you know. It's 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 not just the right thing to do to make sure other countries have access to vaccines. Like to care for ourselves, we need to care for others. So, and I I think Biden is certainly, you know, the, again the care infrastructure, the power that the US has to signal simply by putting it there. I'm, I'm really surprised it hasn't been picked up more in in particularly in progressive media in Australia as a as an example of the way we can, you know, care is infrastructure. I think is. We talked about the gendered stuff, you know, infrastructure tends to be that masculine stuff of, you know, bridges and sewage systems and, you know, the way we really gender these things. Like infrastructure isn't associated with care. So I think there is something there globally as well about, you know, what would a global infrastructure of care look like? And and, and thinking through the things around patents and profit and extractivism and but that's very radical, you know, and and partly I think it's starting to just develop a shared language that we we use to frame these discussions and pull ourselves up when we start to go down the the profit extractivist route, even even when we think it's helpful. Like how do we how do we do, how do we also give an opportunity to reframe? Elise, I wanted to, to bring you in here and, and think particularly about the the global development context. And global care chains are the entwined global processes of women from less advantaged circumstances undertaking care work to enable other women to engage in different activities and fulfil different responsibilities. And of course, there's a very heavily gendered element to this. And we see the way in which the responsibility for caring is falling onto women. 
UN Women, amongst others, have argued that the vicious cycle of care, inequality and exclusion must be broken. I'd be really keen as we kind of start to draw this conversation to a close to hear your thoughts on how global care chains can be exploitative, but perhaps more importantly in terms of looking forward, how we can start to rethink some of the practices that give rise to those global care chains. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, and it is a really, um, you know, a very stark, I think, illustration of how interconnected we are globally. And, you know, whilst we've been talking about care in Australia, we actually, you know, we are talking about care in the world because we're just so connected and, and global care change is, change is one example, you know. And I, I think this sort of, as the sort of breadwinner model of the 60s is, has sort of moved and, and you know, middle-class women in, in global North countries have moved predominantly into paid work, there's been a huge gap of who does that care work now. Um, and so we've gone into childcare, but who, and we send children to childcare, but who does that work um, in the childcare? And, you know, what we're seeing is that a lot of Global South women, not just in Australia, but, but beyond, are, are doing that, that work, are filling that sort of void that um, middle-class women used to do when it was expected that, that, that you'd be, uh, women wouldn't be in the workforce that, and you'd live off the one male earner wage. Uh, so you see, you see over time this shift where ca- the caring responsibilities are shifting now to global South women uh, who are doing that work, and and their children uh, and their caring responsibilities are being filled in by elderly members of the family and other sort of social networks at, at home. So you see the ways in which we are totally connected, and and I think you know. Instead of sort of saying, well, you know, care is the problem here, that is really important work. I think we go back to that sort of conversation that we had at the start and talking about what the global economic system is um, and why it is that care is seen as a secondary piece of of the, the economic picture and why it's not a fundamental central piece to the economic picture. And I think, you know, this sort of concern, uh, you know, of global um, precariousness more broadly, I think that's that's definitely also part of the picture that that you know this sort of promise of development that you know full employment will be reached by you know there will be there will be jobs for for people if countries just develop has has actually largely failed for most for across the world that the informal economy is the formal economy, if you like, that is the majority experience of of um, working life is not having economic security uh, at all, not having social protections, and so you know, in the, in this has been a patterning of the global economy since colonization and the sort of ways in which those processes have patterned the way in which the global economy has has progressed. So, you know, thinking about uh, the ways in which people can have economic security and disrupting those gendered norms that are are across the world, I think is, is, is all really important work. I think we could continue this conversation for hours um, and I'm so glad to have had Millie and Elise with us talking today about the value of caring. We're coming to our last question and we do like to to finish the conversation by coming back to where we are now. I'm maintaining cautious optimism that we live in a time where our policymakers are open to new ideas and where the time for a new framework is still with us. So uh, can I ask both of you, if you were to give one piece of advice to policymakers on how we begin the process of genuinely valuing care, 
what would that be? Yeah, I mean, I'd say implement a livable income guarantee. And we, we just saw that they can do something very close, very quickly. They, they got rid of mutual obligations and increased people's social security payments by, uh, uh, with the COVID supplement, which got most people above the poverty line overnight. So it, it, that in effect, that those, those two measures were like a basic income during, during COVID. Uh, and so I would say, let's do that and, and let's do it quick and let's keep it there. Uh, and I think that would provide people an economic floor so then we can start more work around, you know, reconfiguring and recentering care in the economy. Millie? Oh, I mean, the simplest thing I think is taking profit out of care. You know, that's the first thing. People before profit, you know, no questions. And then there's a whole lot of cultural change. But I, I think, yeah, taking the profit profit motive out of how we care for people is one way to say people are important. Everyone is important. No one person should profit off another person's need to be human. A beautiful way to finish. Thank you so much, Elise and Millie, for joining us today on a conversation around the central importance of caring in the lives that we all lead. Thank you. Anna Greta, that was a fantastic conversation. Both of us have been wanting to get Elise and Millie onto the pod to have this conversation for a very long time and it was worth the wait. What what did you think? Oh, absolutely. For me, this is actually part of the ongoing conversation that has been going through the, the podcast discussions we've had this year and in a number of the other places that I've been working, thinking about economics and thinking about the role that it plays in our society. I think the experience of the last year or so has shown us that we're allowed to challenge some of the norms that have come into our society and Elise and Millie have done a superb job of, of showing us that relationship between value and consumption, our economic model, and the way in which it it doesn't fully contend with what the, the one of Millie's great phrases, the messiness of humanity, that our lives are socially connected, that, that putting monetary value on a lot of what matters to us is, is not at all straightforward, uh, and that we have an extraordinary opportunity at this moment in time to reframe and rethink. Yeah, I think that sense of an opportunity at the moment is really important. And we, to some extent, missed that opportunity last year as we grappled with how to deal with COVID and we had the language of bounce back or snap back snap or whatever back. that language was. But we did see, as Elise said, some really interesting policy experimentation mm. that meant we lifted so many people out of poverty and then made the decision to plunge them back again. Mm. Uh, but we still have that moment, I think, to really reconsider, as you say, the, the kinds of values that we want to have underpinning our society. And for me, out of that conversation, there are a couple of really important things. One is the importance of thinking about gendered roles and responsibilities. And I think this this has to move beyond the conversation about who does the work in a, in a kind of antagonistic way to think about how we genuinely redistribute care in ways that value that care and value people and the fact that both women and men often want to do caring work mm. or want to play caring roles but don't always have the same opportunities. Mm. And for women, it often becomes a burden. So how do we really shift that in a meaningful way? As you said, Anna Greta, and as Millie made the point, how do we get the profit out of care mm. and how do we value care in ways that don't connect it to profit? And the other thing that I just flag and, and put on the agenda here is Elise talked about um, universal basic income, but I think we've also got to think about universal basic services mm. and how important those services are to care and ensuring that everyone has access to those services and the people who provide those services are well remunerated and valued for them. 
Mm, absolutely. So I think this is another one that gives us more food for thought and more themes that will come up again over the course of the rest of this year and into next year. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we really value your thoughts and uh, reflections on, on the work that we're doing. Uh, and you can reach out to us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or Apps Policy Forum, or you can email us at podcast at policyforum.net. Uh, if you're on Facebook and you'd like to join the Facebook group, you can type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar on Facebook and join into our group. If you're listening to this through your podcast platform, please don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a review. We're always interested to hear feedback and thoughts and particularly how, how well or otherwise we're doing. We will be back next week with another episode. I think next week we'll actually be reflecting on the Royal Commission into National Natural Disasters and thinking about the bushfire experience and what we might learn going forward. And I think we've got some more exciting stuff coming up after that. Absolutely. Something to keep people warm during the cold months ahead. Absolutely. Absolutely. So goodbye from Anna Greta Hunter. And from me, Sharon Bessel. Bye-bye for now. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 